Let's stand together. We'll read our text, Genesis chapter 50. We're going to begin reading in verse 22. It says, And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived in 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. So basically, he was able to see his grandchildren. What a joy that would have been as well. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. I think there was a temptation to just kind of gloss over these verses as we studied his life, but God certainly impressed upon my mind some significance of these bones. And I think there are certainly some lessons that we need to learn tonight about a box of old bones. That's what they had left when Joseph was gone, a box of old bones, but there was something to these bones, and I want to point it out to you tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray, Heavenly Thy Spirit, and help me tonight to communicate Your truth. I pray that it would minister to us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Andrei Tchaikovsky, not to be confused, uh, confused with Tchaikovsky, he was a Polish Jew that had survived World War II. And he, in his own right, did become a famous composer and pianist. And when he died in 1982... Uh, he donated his skull to the Royal Shakespeare Company. And what he wanted with his skull is he wanted it to be used as a prop in a very famous scene in Hamlet. And uh, I think that was kind of interesting because for years they didn't use an actual skull. But in 2008, he died in 1982, but in 2008 they actually used his skull in this production. And it could... could caused such an uproar that it caused people to want to come just because they were using this skull. And the, the company said, no, no, we're not using it anymore. But then they really were and all this stuff. But he said, I want my skull to be used in this play. I think it's interesting, when Joseph died, he did not leave a mansion on the Nile for his family. He did not leave a stable of fine Arabian horses. He did not leave a king's ransom of jewels. He left a box, and in this box, he left a bunch of old bones. And apparently, this box of old bones had a lot of value, because if you want to fast forward about 200 years or so, when the Israelites are checking out of Egypt, they've been enslaved for several generations, now they're checking out. And if, if you remember when they were leaving Egypt in the Exodus, remember, the Egyptians were so fed up with these plagues and the destruction that had happened, they were like, get these people out of here. And they were saying, we'll pay you to leave. Do you want our jewels? Do you want our money? Do you want our riches? And they were passing all of these things out to the people of Israel as they were leaving. And, jo and Moses said, you know what I want? I forgot something. we got to go back and get it. I want that box of old bones. Joseph's bones. There was something valuable to it. In fact, I want to point this out. Of all the great things that Joseph did in his life, in the great chapter of faith, remember Hebrews chapter 11, you Bible students know, Hebrews 11 is significant, and it goes through all these great characters. 
By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, Moses' parents did this. And it goes on and on and on. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 22, of all the things that Joseph did in his life, the one thing that Hebrews 11 points out is this right here. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Of all the things in his life, that's what they pointed out. So what was symbolic here in that box of bones, it was symbolic of faith. Faith. Now it's amazing to me, all this journey of, of Joseph's life, it's amazing to me to think that when you consider it, that he had any faith at all. You say, what do you mean? The sorrow of his life had not made him bitter. I think we would all agree that of many of the characters in the Bible, Joseph experienced a lot of sorrow, didn't he? Betrayal, uh, problems, uh, lied about, tragedy, a lot of sorrow and suffering. And you notice it never made him bitter. It never made him bitter. I would also point this out. It's amazing they had any faith because not only did the sorrow of life not make him bitter, but the success of life did not make him indifferent. Oh, I can tell you, I can point it out. In, in all of my years of ministry, being around church life, being around people for a long time, you know what is one of our biggest enemies is not so much the sufferings in life. One of our biggest enemies sometimes is the success in life. Because you can tell, I, I can mark it down. I've seen it happen over and over again. People get a promotion and they make more money and they have this and they have that and they're experiencing success. It's easy to start forgetting about God. And when he was elevated and life started going good, he still kept his faith. I also want to point this. The secularization of Egypt did not make him an agnostic. It, it, it did not affect him that way. He was living in a pagan land, in a pagan place, but he always kept his faith. And that ought to be a reminder to us as we're watching the secularization of America happen more and more and more over again, that does not mean that we should lose heart and lose our faith. No, friend, we ought to be like Joseph and be determined in our faith, even in the onslaught of secularization. So his box of old bones, what it was, was it was a constant reminder to the Jewish people to have faith in God. In fact, I believe that's why he said, hey, when God carries you out of here, when you check out of this place, He is going to take you into a land that He has promised you. And I want you to take my bones with you because as you carry those bones away, it's going to remind you that you should keep the faith. John Phillips, the commentator, said this, Thus ends Genesis. It begins with creation and ends with a coffin. It begins with glory and ends with a grave. It begins with the vastness of eternity and ends with the shortness of time. It begins with the living God and ends with a dead man. It begins with a blaze of brightness in heaven and ends with a box of bones in Egypt. I want to point out tonight two testimonies that come from this box of bones. Two testimonies that come from this box of old bones. Number one, I want you to see this. This box of bones was a link to the past. It was a link to the past. You know, it's not uncommon to read leadership books. I try to read at least one good leadership book every year. And to hear, when you read those, you often hear how good leaders don't live in the past. I think a little, a little bit, let's just remind everybody here, I think sometimes we got some teenagers and young people here, uh, I think we need to be reminded sometimes that teenagers don't like to hear how good it was in your day and how bad their generation is. They don't like hearing that. I know sometimes we like to remind them, you know, back in my 
day, in fact, I got a little uh, symbol of that here. Maybe you've seen this. You know, back in my day, we had to walk 20 miles through the snow, uphill each way, and we liked it that way. You know, these young people, they don't like hearing that. And so sometimes we say, you know, good leadership doesn't live in the past. Listen, you can't live in the glory years. Let's, let's apply to church life. You know, you can't live in the glory years of Oakwood. Oakwood's been around since, I think, 1908. It's been around a long time. And nobody wants to hear, you know, I tell you what, man, back in 1954, that's when the church was really doing something. We don't want to live in the past that way. Nobody wants to hear how great things used to be. And I got a question for you. How good were they really? How good were they really? I mean, do we all want to go back to outdoor plumbing instead of indoor plumbing? Do we really want to go back to the days of outhouses? I mean, have you ever been in a porta potty? <laughs> do you really want to go back to the days of no air conditioning in South Carolina? Do you, do you really? Listen, let me just encourage you tonight. Everything old is not bad. Amen. I think sometimes our young people need to be reminded of that. I think sometimes we get to the mentality of just thinking, hey, if it's new, then it's better. Not necessarily. Some of these cranky people that are always, back in my day, hey, some things about their day were way better than our day. It's true. We better admit it. It's true. But I want to say to you again, everything old is not bad, and everything new is not good. Not, not necessarily. It goes both ways. So therefore, I would submit to you, I want to be what I'm calling conservative. Let me define it this way. As a conservative, I want to take the best from the past and use it being aware of the new. Because I'm not a big car guy, but I do appreciate a cool car. Like, I, I do. I mean, the guys that are into that kind of stuff, I mean, I appreciate it. I, 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 don't, I don't mind going to a car show and seeing that. But you know what I really like doing? Like every once in a while, I don't mind watching one of those TV shows where some guy that's good at that finds some old heap of junk somewhere out in a field or in somebody's dusty old garage, and they take it and they turn it into something. Like they, they give it new paint and fix it up. But you know what I really like? Uh, what I, see, see, not everything new is always good. I'm just telling you that right now. You know what I really like? I, I, I love seeing somebody take like a, like let's say an old, uh, an old truck, an old truck from maybe the, the 70s or something. And I love to see him put some high gloss finish on it, but I like to see him put some like leather seats in there and actually put some air conditioning in it. And, and, and I like to see him take, uh, again, I don't want to sound ignorant because I don't know a whole lot about cars, but I like to see him take some brand new 2023 like Corvette engine and put it in that truck and put suspension on that truck. I mean, that's like, that's really cool to me because what you're doing is you're taking like, like the cool old of that, of that truck and you're putting something off, like new suspension and new engine and new horsepower in something old. I, I think that that's the way it should be conservative. Appreciating the, the significance and the power of the old and applying it to the new. You see, what we don't want to do is we don't want to get what I'm calling preservative as opposed to conservative. Preservative is embalming the past and preserving it while being totally unaware of what God is doing today. I want to say to you this evening, heritage. To properly define that word, heritage is something that is handed down from the past. That is a biblical concept. 
I read to you Psalm 16.6. It says this, The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. You know, sometimes when we talk about heritage, we think about it in terms of this. If I pass away, if I pass on a heritage to my family, then we think of terms of property or, or reputation or, or even maybe traditions we think of, of wealth and those kind of things, but I would say to you tonight, as a preacher of the Bible and of the Gospel, more important than traditions, more important than a good name, more important than some property, is faith. You know of Patrick Henry, right? Uh, one of our founding fathers of our nation who famous for saying, give me liberty or give me death. He once said this. He said, I have now disposed all of my property to my family. There's one thing more that I could give them. That is the Christian religion. If they had that, and I had not given them one shilling, they would have been rich. And if they had not that, and I had given them all the world, they would be poor. I say amen to that. You see, these bones were important because they were a reminder of who they were and whose they were. That's why Joseph was very specific about, hey, Put me in a box, embalm me, that's fine. But you prop me up in a corner somewhere and don't forget about my bones. Take them with you. You see, what he was doing is he was, he was connecting these people to their past. To their past. It's interesting how the Lord works. I had already prepared this message. I was excited about preaching this message. When you prepare sermons, you never know how they're going to come out. You know, sometimes I look at it on paper and I think, this is going to be great. And then I'm done and I'm like, oh, jeez. And other times I'm like, I don't have much here, and God jumps on it and blesses it. But I had already prepared this message, and I started reading a book about Frederick Douglass. Remember Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist and the orator, Frederick Douglass? And this book is fantastic so far. I've really enjoyed it. And Frederick Douglass said this. He said, to make a man a slave, you have to rob him of moral responsibility. Oh, man, this started speaking to me. It was so applicable today to what we're dealing with. This is what he was talking. He's talking about slavery, right? And he said this, to accomplish that, to rob a man of moral responsibility, he said this, the masters had to deny slaves of at least three things. He said history, law, and the fruits of their labor. Now what he said about law applied to so much of what we're seeing today, the lawlessness in our country. And I think that this lawlessness that we're seeing everywhere is going to enslave us to government. And boy, I'm concerned about it. And the fruits of our labor, oh, he had a lot of good things to say about that. But let me focus on what he said a little bit about history. He said this, history generates pride and solidarity in people. And so what he's saying is a master, a man could enslave another man if he robbed that man of history it would not allow them to have solidarity. It would not allow them to have unity amongst themselves. Are we not a divided people today? And are we not confused about our history from where we came? Oh, yeah. He said this, if the slave could be deprived of a past, he could not imagine a future. I want to say to you tonight, I believe that we are responsible for steering the hearst of history. The hearse of history. So what do you mean? Listen, this is why we make a big deal of this, by the way. We talk about songs. Did you notice tonight, I mean, I've got a list here, we sang constantly abiding. That's an old hymn. You know, I would say that many, many churches don't sing that hymn. It's been forgotten. It's gone. I like that hymn. 
We also sang Nearer, Still Nearer. That's, that's an old hymn too. But we also sang I Run to Christ. It's a new song to us. Many of us are just now learning it. But I want to remind you what I've said to you again and again and again. I think these old hymns are important because what they do is they connect us to generations of Christians. But I think we need to be very careful as a church. We need to make sure that we also sing songs like I Run to Christ. Because what they do is they connect us to this generation. And I want to say publicly, I don't believe God's dead. I believe He's still working in this generation today. And so every generation must have their song. And so it's as if there's a box of old bones here saying, hey, don't forget from where you came from. Because as soon as you forget from where you came from, you will not have a future to run to. See, if we forget where we came from, our history and our heritage, we will not be equipped for where we are going. And this box of bones was a constant reminder of who the Israelites were and where they came from. Friend, let's not forget our Christian heritage. Many are trying to revise history, rewrite history. And that's one thing, but I'll tell you, we must not forget from whence we came from. Let's not forget our, our roots as a church, who we are. Listen, I'm, I've only been the pastor here seven years, but I, I'm very well familiar with some of the pastors that served before me. I understand I'm standing on the shoulders of other people who have built this place. Listen, we cannot forget that this is a... This is a Baptist church that started in a, an old mill village back here. Some of you know what I'm talking about, mill villages. You, 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 you can drive back there. You know what I'm talking about, the textile mills of the south and, and these little cracker box houses that popped up around them. And they thought, man, we, we need to have softball teams and communities and things for our, our mill. And somebody said, you know what we need? We need a gospel-centered place where people can hear the gospel and be saved. And so they started Oakwood Baptist Church. Listen, we, we ought never forget from where we came from. But we can't live back there either. And that's why I point out the second point. This box of bones was a link to the past. But this box of bones was also a look to the future. Can I point something out to you in our text? Look at verse 25. Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and ye shall carry my, up my bones from hence. You know, he was looking by faith to something bigger than what was going on in Egypt. He knew God had promised him a land. And he knew they were going there. And so he was making preparation. His bones didn't just signify, hey, these are the people you came from. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my father, and now me. He was connecting them to the past, but he was also looking forward to their future. We notice in our text in verse 23 that he lived to see his grandkids. And you notice in that text, did you read that? And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. Do you, do you, just, kind of, do you just kind of get the idea that he was excited about that? I do. I, I'm not a grandfather, not yet. Uh, hopefully someday I will be. I've, I've been told by so many of you that are grandparents that if you knew being a grandparent was this great, you would have had them first. Right? There just is something to your grandchildren. I see a proud grand, grandma and grandpa back here. We got a baby on the back row and everybody's fired up about Luke and so are grandma and grandpa, I'm sure. It's a wonderful thing. And it's a particular joy to know in our hearts that basically life is going to continue on. That's what a grandchild signifies. Life is going to go on. Our family is going to go on. And there's something that I believe there's God generated inside of us that wants to perpetuate our families and our life and our, our people. And, and, and there's something exciting about the, the future of this generation. And here's what the Bible teaches us. That generation after generation will be blessed 
by the faith of their predecessors. Listen, I, I long think about this. I, I'm glad that, that uh, you know, I can go back several generations in my family, but I'll just go back to my father. I, I'm glad that my dad got saved in an old-timey church in northern Kentucky. It, it was in the old days. It didn't have air conditioning, and they had to raise the windows. And right across the street was a brewery. He said as you, as you preached, you could smell the waft of alcohol and beer coming through the windows. And I'm glad my dad got saved. And I'm glad my, my mom and dad, when they got married, they, they decided, you know, we're going to have a Christian home. And my mom grew up in a broken home that had a Christian influence, but had a lot of sinful influences in it. And, and they decided, you know, we're going to have a home that's like this. And because my parents made some decisions by faith, you know what? I was the benefactor of that. My life has been blessed by that. And whether my kids recognize this or not, my kids have been blessed by the decisions of previous generations. And you know, I think about that because I want the decisions that Mindy and I make as a husband and a wife and the way that we've raised our kids and the things that we've done. Oh no, not trying to say I've been a perfect man. I'm not. I, nobody is. But I'm telling you, I, I, wanted, I want it to be said that the decisions that I have made by faith in my life and the life of faith that I've lived before them, I wanted to pay dividends in their life and not just their life, but their children's life and their children's life. And I hope that the faithful decisions of my life are in effect for generations to come. And I want to warn everybody here tonight as well. Generation after generation will also be cursed by unbelief. Friend, I, I'm not going to get too sidetracked, but I think that that's what we're seeing after all. I think that's what we're seeing in, in America in a lot of ways, is we're seeing the dividends of unbelief coming to fruition. You know, oftentimes... The World War II generation is called the greatest generation. How many of you have ever even read that book by Tom Brokaw, The Greatest Generation? It's kind of a classic, and I read it, was blessed by it, and I think there's a lot to be said of that generation. I mean, you, you think about those guys, like, like my grandfather. My grandfather lied to get in the army so he could serve in World War II. I mean, he was like 17 years old. He lied and forged papers so he could get in. Ended up fighting over in Europe. And, and you know, his reward for lying and getting in the army so early is he got to go to Korea too. I mean, how many of our 17-year-old guys prepared to do something like that? Man, I, we, we can't hardly get our kids to clean their room, let, go, let, all, let alone go fight a war. And so there's something to be said about that generation, and we often call them the, the, the greatest generation, but, but I, I want to I submit an idea to you. I was talking to Minnie, she was reading a book, she, she presented this idea to me, but, but I, I think this is an interesting thought. Really, the greatest generation is not the World War II generation that we call the greatest generation. You know who the greatest generation really is? The generation that raised them. Because I'm not trying to disrespect anybody. You can kind of look at the generation that came after the greatest generation and make an argument they didn't do so well. I'm just trying to tell you that the decisions we make today, they affect the future. And let me just challenge, especially the grandparents in this room, that grandparents are intended to form a living link, not just to the past of our families from which we came from, but they are the link to the eternal future that we are all headed to. I love the fact that Joseph could see farther ahead because he was rooted and grounded in the past. He remembered the stories of his, his grandfather Abraham or excuse me, his grandfather Isaac and his great-grandfather Abraham. He remembers the stories of Jacob, 
who was a scoundrel in his own right, but did live by faith. When he met God at Bethel, it changed his life and transformed him. And he, he, he was determined to follow the ways of the Lord and walk in his ways. And, and, and I'm, I'm so thankful that Joseph saw himself as a part of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now himself. But in verse 25, we see that Joseph was dogmatic about his conviction of the promised land. Did you notice that he says, God shall surely. He didn't say perhaps when God moves you out of here. He said, God's going to do this. I don't know when, but God's going to do this. And these bones testified that God had brought them out and God would bring them in. So I was thinking about this. You know what that means? It wasn't just enough for Joseph to stand up and say, hey, hey, this is what God's going to do in the future. I believe that. Somebody else had to be influenced by his faith. You say, what do you mean? Somebody else had to provide for his bones. Remember, he was a pretty important character in Egypt. Why didn't they take his bones and put it in some kind of crypt somewhere, like King Tut hidden back away for the afterlife? Clearly somebody said, hey, that's not what he wanted. You can embalm him, you, you can put him in that fancy fancy uh, coffin and all of that stuff, but, but you better put him on display somewhere so we can get to that when we need it. Y'all tracking me? Somebody had to say, hey, provide for those. Somebody had to keep the memories alive. That, 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 meant, that meant somebody was walking through somewhere and saying, hey, what's this guy over here? I mean, I, I, mean, I never heard of this guy. Oh, that's Joseph. You never heard of Joseph. Oh, let me tell you what Joseph did for our people. Somebody had to keep his memories alive. Somebody had to say, hey, this isn't just a box of anybody's bones. This is a box of Joseph's bones. And Joseph's bones mean this. Somebody had to teach that. And somebody also had to say this. Hey, someday I'm going to be gone. You got to tell him about bones. You got to tell him about Joseph. I'm trying to tell you that that's everybody's generational duty. Listen, folks, can I make application? I mean, is everybody tracking with me tonight? Am I the only one that's a little bit excited about this? I mean, everybody in here needs to know what the book is. So what do I mean? Hey, listen, I settled this a long time ago. Whether you believe it or not, I've got this settled. This, this is the Word of God. This, this is the authority on which I've built my life. And we've got to know that. It's just shocking to me that even some Christian people are, are confused about this. What? Again, I know that's where the battleground has been. Satan came to Eve and said, Hath not God said? And we've been fighting about what this book is for a long, long time. Man, this place has got to have that settled. And I hope I can look to my kids and their kids and somebody say, Hey, this isn't just some, some good book to study, throw in the corner, throw in the dashboard of your car somewhere and, and pull it out once every Sunday. No, no, this is the Word of God. Build your life on it. Now, I know what this book is. And, and, and to be quite honest, and I'm not, I'm not going to chase any rabbits tonight, I get really irritated with how many people want to say that your, what, what, what your bibliology is is a secondary issue. It is not a secondary issue. It is extremely important. We need to know what this book is. And we need to know what the gospel is. Listen, we live in a culture. We live in the, the Bible Belt. 
where, where everybody is saved and everybody has some kind of semblance of, of Christianity and religion, but let us never lose sight of the specifics of what the gospel is. It is not enough to just raise your kids to be good Christians. No, it, it is important that we raise our kids to be actual believers in the gospel, and we know what the gospel is. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have put all our eggs in that basket. Listen, I, I don't, man, I, I, it, it's frustrating to me when you say, hey, how do you know for sure you're on your way to go to heaven? Or, how, how, you, do you know for sure you're on your way to heaven? Well, yeah, I've always been a Christian. That shows me that you don't understand the gospel. How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, you know, I mean, like, I mean, I, I love Jesus. That's not the gospel. Man, if somebody pinned me down and said, hey, tell me how you're going to heaven, well, it would sound something like this. I'm a sinner. I have offended the laws of God. And without God, I'm in big trouble. And he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for me. He was killed. He was buried. He rose from the dead. And my faith is in Jesus to take me to heaven and forgive me my sin. I have no justification before God except for that. You say, well, I'd articulate a little different. That's fine. But you better know what the gospel is. Again, I'm, I'm just pointing this out. We need to know what a church is. The church is not just a a gathering of people that slap some religion on it. I'm going to remind you, God does not tell you where to go to church. You get to choose that. But He does tell us what kind of church to go to. And it is amazing to me how people have lost their minds about this kind of stuff and don't have the first thing of uh, 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 understanding about what, what, a, what a New Testament Bible-believing church is supposed to look like. Now again, I understand in 2023, not all... I mean, churches look a little bit different than they did in the first century, but there are elements of those churches that have stayed the same year after year and generation after generation, and we better know what that is. So I, I, again, I, you, I'm not trying to speak for you. This is, this is Michaelology right here, so you can take it or leave it, but I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want to raise my kids not just to be going to church when they're adults, but be going to the right kind of a church when they're adults. This is very important to me. We, we, we need to know, and, and man, I know the hour's getting on and you will probably want to go home and do something else. But listen, we need to know what biblical separation is. It's just frustrating to me to see what God's people are doing and the decisions that they're making without any kind of semblance of knowledge. Look, folks, go back and study the Old Testament. Dive into one of those books that you don't always enjoy like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And I know these people love to thumb their nose at these ideas like, well, see, the Bible says something. In that same chapter, it says something about homosexuality. It says something about not wearing mixed clothing. What are you going to do with that, Christian? But don't be so ignorant about the Bible. See, when you say things like that, you prove to me that you don't know much about the Scriptures. And you can talk about, look, look, let me just point this out. A lot of those things in the Old Testament, the mixing of clothes, the mixing of seeds in fields, circumcision, Sabbath days, feasts, you know what God was saying over and over and over and over again? Don't miss this, because it's not that complicated. He was saying, my followers, my people, are not supposed to be like everybody else. That's what he was saying. And when the New Testament age of grace came in, and the law was crucified to the cross, and things changed a little bit, you know what did not change? What did not change is that his people are supposed to be different than everybody else. And that's what I'm saying. We better know something about separation. 
Because if your kids don't every once, you're raising kids and they don't every once in a while come up to you and say, well, so-and-so gets to do this. How come we don't get to do that? Because we're different. I can't tell you how many times I've sat on a couch with one of my kids and go, listen, I'm sorry, sweetheart, but you were given very weird parents. You didn't get to pick it. I'm sorry. It's just your lot in life. And we believe this, and so therefore you can't do that. We believe this, so therefore you're going to do that. It's because God say we're different. I'm not talking about a bunch of weirdos. I don't want to walk around the Anderson community and go, oh my goodness, there's one of the Oakwood people. And people are weird, man. <laughs> you don't have to be like that. But if we're going to make a difference in this world, we're going to have to be different people. And listen, you say, well, how do we be different? Just follow Jesus. <laughs> just follow Jesus the way he taught you. You will be different. Ah, uh, so many things I could say, but I don't want to wear you out. Folks, the older generation gives us wisdom. That's why I think people say, it's an unhealthy church if you don't have any young people. And I get why they say that. I mean, there's nobody coming up afterwards. I mean, that church is going to die. I mean, when the last person dies, turn off the lights. But can I tell you something? It is just as unhealthy a church if it doesn't have any old people in it. Older people give us wisdom. You know what that middle generation does? I feel like the middle generation gives us strength. The older generation, and I'm not calling anybody old. You decide who you are. <laughs> the older generation has wisdom, but they don't always have the pep in their step to get it done. And hopefully they've taught this middle generation a thing or two. And, and, and that middle generation is like, okay, yeah, you're right. That's, that's the right thing. We're going to put our shoulder to the plow and we're going to get this done. Can I tell you the younger generation? They give us hope. They give us hope. I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but went down to the basketball tournament. You know, our, our boys, we, we made it to the finals in the state tournament. We, we lost in the finals. It was very disappointing for us. We, we, we really had a chance, and we, it was just it was disappointing. But there's more to life than basketball. But I was riding down to the, down to the tournament, um, and I was riding with Cole McGowan. Cole's 18, almost 19 years old. And I don't know why. We, we, we got to talking about a lot of things. And, and there was something I was talking to him about. I can't exactly remember what, but I, but I was talking to him, and I was trying to say, hey, you know, someday, if, if, if you stick around here, someday you're going to be 40 years old. You're going, to be, you're going to be a deacon in this church. You're going to be a Sunday school teacher in this church. He's already singing in the choir, but he's going to look a little older. <laughs> and, and, and right now, I'm a 45-year-old guy. I, 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 I try and go hard. And I know some of you look at me like, man, you go, boy, but one of these days you're going to slow down. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to go as hard as I can while I can. And, 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 and so, man, I, I want to provide strength. But I want to be able to look back and say, hey, look, look, follow me. I have followed a generation before me. I have followed them. It is a good path, a well-worn path. It is the right path to walk on. And I've tried to walk on that path. And I'm walking fast on that path. And I'm wearing out some treads on that path. And I love to look back at this generation and see hope. 
I love to see him singing in the choir and playing instruments and working the sound and serving as ushers and working in uh, junior churches and Sunday school classes because to me, I, I see hope. But what it means is a generation like me had to follow that generation and a generation like them has to follow this generation. And that's what those bones were saying. Those bones were saying there's something important in that past. There's something important back there. What's important back there in that past is not embalmed to be preserved and lived in, but what it does is it links us to this great future that we're marching on towards. Love that box of old bones. It speaks to us. It's telling us something. G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, The man of God has not finished his work in the world when they put him in a coffin. And I want to be a man of God. Someday when they put my bones in a box, I don't know if it's a nice wooden box. I don't know what it'll look like. I don't know what the flower spread will be on it. I, I really don't care at that point. It'll be like my dad. He told us to put him in a hefty sack on the corner and let somebody pick him up. <laughs> said, save the money. Someday when they put my bones in a box, I really hope that that's true about me. That my work is still not done. It's because I'm in a box. I don't want my work to be done. I want them to live on in the lives of my children. My, my children's children. If God gives me that long of a life, their children. And it's not just my own family. I want so bad the fingerprints of my life and my influence to be on the people that God has allowed me to lead as their spiritual leader with the title pastor. I hope that there are some fingerprints. Oh no, I'm just one in a line. I won't be here 40 plus years like E.C. White. But I, I'm just one in a line of E.C. White and J. Robert Martin and, and, and the men that came after them. Proc, I know these men. I know what they, they did here. And their fingerprints are on many of your lives. I, I still in this area hear people talk about Russell Rice and his influence on this area. And I want it to be said of me someday that I, I influenced people. And even though they put my bones in a box, you can go to my tombstone and look at it and say, hey, there was something about the past in which he lived in that connects to the day today, and there is hope for tomorrow. Oh, that's important to us. Joseph's work continued on, and I pray that mine will too in the lives of those that I've had the privilege to influence. As you know, I like to ask questions. Let me ask you just two simple ones tonight. Number one, are you holding a solid link to the past? Do not get caught up in this modern trend that says everything in the past is fuddy-duddy and everything new is where it's at. That's not necessarily true. Do you know the past? Because if you do not know where you came from, you're going to be very limited about where you're going. Second question, are you building a secure link to the future? Friends, you and I both know. Let's just be honest. Come on, older generation. We can't live back there. God doesn't want us to live back there. He wants us to learn, stay connected. But moving forward, older generation, provide us wisdom. Middle generation, let's, let's give strength. Younger generation, give us hope. Hope for a great tomorrow.
Pray the Lord to help us to learn from this box of old bones.